Welcome to the 121st episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are an overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, a deep dive into all things NBA, including a look back at the past week of NBA action, and a discussion about the, tra- the trade deadline activity. And finally, a look back at Super Bowl 56. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. And we will start in the NBA, where Patrick went 3-1 and one in his weekend predictions. Shifting over to NCAA basketball, Patrick went 2-2 two and two in his predictions. And in the NFL, Patrick correctly picked the Super Bowl, going 1-0. and oh. So Patrick was 6-3 and three overall in this weekend's predictions, bringing him to a 352-249 and 249 overall record, which is a 58.6% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your predictions? Well, I'm a little upset that the Super Bowl had to happen on this weekend because otherwise I would have had a perfect 600 games uh, with a 351 and 249 record, but I'll take the extra win, and obviously Super Bowl is very exciting every year. Um, in the NBA, I lost by a Nikola Jokic block, and that was all. That was the only game I lost. Uh, the Nuggets came down to the wire with the Raptors, a really good game start to finish, and then Nikola Jokic just at the end blocked a putback attempt after a uh, missed three by Fred Van Vliet uh, that would have, I believe, the three would have won the game and then the two would have tied the game and sent it to overtime. Nikola Jokic blocked it, ended up a two-point game, I believe. If not, it was a one-point game and that was for the win, uh, but that block effectively ended it. Uh, so, you know, a little, little, little upset about that one, but that's what happens when you pick against an MVP candidate. Uh, in the Cavs-Sixers game, I did not pick against an MVP candidate. I picked the MVP candidate to win the game. The Sixers did not let me down there. Uh, The Bulls played a good game against the Timberwolves, and then the Heat had a 19-point lead on the Nets and then let Kyrie Irving completely go off in the fourth quarter. Uh, We'll we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, But that game, I still ended up winning. And then in college basketball, UConn came down to the wire. They lost, and then UCLA had about eight opportunities to win at the end of the game after USC gave them opportunities to win the game over and over and over again. Uh, with some pretty dumb plays, but UCLA was not able to cash in, and uh, they just didn't play a great game overall, and uh, USC didn't even have Isaiah Mobley, so actually a quality win by USC. I'll give them their credit this weekend, but everybody knows I also think UCLA is a little bit overrated, so you can just chalk it up to me not being so high on the Pac-12 in general, Uh, but in the Super Bowl, not going to say anything about it, but yes, I did pick the Rams for the first time. I didn't jinx them, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. All right, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. Let's move to our weekly review of NBA action, and as always, we start with Patrick's thoughts on who the most impressive teams of the past week were. Let's start with the Boston Celtics, who went 3-0 this week with wins over Atlanta, Denver, and Brooklyn. Uh, The Brooklyn win normally looks like a great win on people's resume, but... With the Nets currently on an 11-game losing streak, maybe not so much. Uh, But uh, still, Celtics on an 8-win streak of their own. Uh, They made a big trade this week that we'll get to, but I really like the addition they made. And uh, I'll I'll talk about it a little bit later when we talk about the trade deadline, so I won't talk about it too much now. But uh, moving on from that, the Grizzlies went 3-0 this week. They beat Charlotte, Detroit, and the Clippers. Uh, the biggest thing for me this week was I looked at their stats and saw that they were averaging 131 points per game throughout the week. Uh, that's that's pretty good if you didn't know, uh, and that's really hard to uh, that, that's just hard to to beat. Honestly, I don't know how any team could have really stayed with them. I don't know if necessarily those games were blowouts or not. 
Frankly, I don't care because Memphis is always impressing me every single week. They seem to always get better no matter who's on the court. Uh, and that's really the story of their whole year. But they keep getting better and they keep playing better. So let's move on from that. Let's talk about the Phoenix Suns who went 4-0 this week. I have to say, before I even talk about who they played, we almost never talk about the Suns because they're just too good. It's almost not fair to talk about them and you know call their weeks impressive when they're 46-10 and 10 on the season. On average, if you put them in a four-game span, they're going to go 3-1 and one or 4-1. and one. In a five-game span, at least, they'd go 4-1. and one. So, like, it's hard for me to think about them and see, you know, four undefeated teams and then the Suns are the fifth. I'm always thinking, you know what? It's the Suns. Of course, of course they went undefeated. It's the Suns. But, you know, I feel like I have to talk about them, right, at some point. So, I'm going to go ahead and put them on there. They went 4-0. Uh, Orlando, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Chicago were the three teams, that, or the four teams, I should say, that they beat. Uh, obviously, you have Orlando sitting at the bottom of the East. But Milwaukee, uh, Philadelphia, and Chicago are sitting in that log jam in 1-5 through five in the in the East. So those are good teams that they beat. Uh, and look, the Suns are going to sweep through the East probably any time they play them unless they play these teams once again and these teams are you know, maybe got some of their pieces that they acquired, uh, which, again, we'll talk about some of that for at least one of those teams later. Uh, But, look, the Suns are playing really well. They have played well all season. And I really like the fact that you can't even tell when guys are injured on that team. I mean, other than the appearance and the numbers of the actual players, the team does not look like they're missing DeAndre Ayton when Bismack Biombo was playing. They don't look like JaVale McGee. They don't make JaVale McGee look like He's out of place on the roster. They make every single player on that roster look like they've been there and were there on the finals run last year, no matter who it is. So I I can't give enough credit to the Suns, and they continue to do the same thing, just making everybody look so great on that team. And it's not like they aren't great individual players. They really are. And uh, there's a reason why Chris Paul is going to be an MVP candidate this year, because of the fact that he just makes everybody on that team better. And that's really what's helping them. And I think uh, Devin Booker definitely deserves that all-star game appearance, too, that he's going to get. I mean, they, they, everybody on that team is deserving of all the praise they're getting. Uh, so, overall, Suns are having a great year. Every one of their players pretty much is having a great year individually, maybe with the exception of DeAndre Ayton fighting through some injury struggles. But let's move on from the Suns. The Utah Jazz went 3-0 this week, beating Orlando. I mean, Orlando's getting beaten by everybody, but it's no surprise. Uh, Golden State and the Knicks. Uh, The Knicks also not playing so well either, but uh, we'll we'll get to that one later. But no losses this week. And overall, that was after kind of a disappointing stretch of at least one and a half, probably two weeks. Uh, So it's good for them to get back in the win column and have some success again after that period. But uh, I think this is what we can come to expect of the Jazz. I mean, they are a good team. They've always been a good team, and I think they're going to continue to climb their way up the standings, or back up or back up the standings, I should say, because they were up there for a while, and they're still in the fourth seed. I don't really, frankly, they might stay in the fourth seed all season because I don't know how anybody's going to climb over Memphis, Golden State, or Phoenix at this point. They're four games behind Memphis, probably will be going in the All-Star break too. Talk about the Grizzlies going 3-0 this week. The Jazz had a perfect week, and they didn't make up any ground, so they might stay there, but for as long as they have home court for the first series, it's going to be hard for really any team to beat them. I mean, there are definitely some who can. Obviously, you have some star-studded teams that are going to be in the play-in race and in the play-in bracket itself. I mean, you have teams like Dallas and Denver also in that contention to be for the five seed. 
Uh, so the Jazz are going to have a tough opponent, no matter who they're playing. But overall, you, you like to see that home field advantage, and your, or home court advantage, I should say, and you like that the Jazz are currently in that position, and they've even been staying there, even though, you know, they haven't seemed to have the best weeks recently. But they've made it through it somehow, and that's credit to them. All right, let's move to the most disappointing teams of the last week. Well, I'll start with uh, two supposed-to-be championship contenders from the beginning of the season, my finals picks, actually. Let's start first with the Brooklyn Nets. By the way, terrible finals picks. Uh, we'll be revising those at the All-Star break. Uh, let's start with the Brooklyn Nets, who went 0-3 this week, lost to Miami, Washington, and Boston. Uh, at this point, you can't even say that Washington's a good loss because they've been playing terribly. I'm pretty sure they're not even in... I mean, they're in contention, but not in position to be in the play-in bracket at this point because they've been that bad uh, recently after they had a good start to the season. And then they had the loss to Miami where, you know, they were losing by 20 points. I mean, I think at least it was 19. I don't know if it ever got to 20 super late in the game. It was at least 19 in the third quarter, though. Uh, And then Kyrie, I mean, he brought them back, but give him credit as much as you can. The reality is he's only playing in road games for now, so... That's half their games that they have that kind of performance, and that means in half the games they play, they're good enough to barely lose to top contenders in the East. They're supposed to be contending for a championship. They can't settle for half the games when they're at their best. They're barely losing to good teams. They need to be beating those teams when they're at their best, and they need to be staying close with them when they're not at their best. And they also had that other loss to the Celtics. So overall, that's not looking too great. However... We do know that they eventually made some additions that, uh, well, they changed the team a lot. But <laughs> let's move on from the Nets. Let's move on to the Lakers, who went 0-3 this week. Also, they lost to Golden State. They lost to Portland. They lost to Milwaukee. I will give the Lakers credit. That loss to Golden State hardly feels like a loss when, well, spoiler alert, they did nothing at the trade deadline, and we'll get to that too. Uh, and then came out and played actually a decent game, you know, sticking with the guys that they have, because those are the only guys they're going to have for the rest of the season, unless Kendrick Nunn comes back from injury early uh, and he starts playing. But I I doubt they would try to integrate him him into the roster this late in the season. Maybe they will, who knows? But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he really never makes that big of an impact. However, that loss against Portland was terrible because Portland had just traded away C.J. McCollum, and they didn't even have it, well kind of spoiled that trade, but they didn't even have anybody they trade they got from the trade for C.J. McCollum. They were playing with like half their roster and guys who probably won't play minutes for the rest of the year, and the Lakers still lost to them. So that's an embarrassing loss. The Warriors' loss is hardly a loss, but that one is a huge one, and it just it's just proof that this team is not the championship-quality team that we thought it was, and uh I don't know what can fix it, and they have kind of run out of opportunities to fix it because now they can only get players from the buyout market or free agency, and unless they want to bring Isaiah Thomas back on another 10-day deal, then uh, I don't think they'll be getting much help. But let's move on from that team to another team that's struggling that is uh, definitely an underachiever, the Knicks, who went 1-3 this week. Losses to Portland, Denver, and Utah. They did collect a win over Golden State, but Golden State played relatively average this week. They didn't play such a great week. They didn't play a bad enough week to be on here, though. Uh, but, look, the Knicks can't settle for one and three out of every week anymore. I, I think we figured out last year that they just didn't... They they settled for a four seed and a, 
a bad playoff run where they made the playoffs and they avoided the play in its first year. And, you know, they'd made the playoffs for the first time in a while, which is great for the franchise. However, they kind of sat around all offseason and didn't really do much to improve the team. And now we're seeing what happens in an East where every other team got a lot better in the offseason. And one team has just kind of been left in the dust. And by the way, Atlanta's not too far from that either. And you can see that reflected in the standings with them too. But they're still a little bit better than the Knicks. And they've been dealing with a lot more injuries. The Knicks have been pretty healthy all year, but they've just had so much turnover. I mean, yeah, they added Kemba Walker, obviously, before the season. But it hasn't really helped. And they don't even play him that much. So, Or they, they had a stretch where they weren't playing him for a while. Now he's pretty much back to a normal role that you'd probably expect for him. But overall, I just don't really see where the Knicks turn from here. Kind of like the Lakers. I think the Nets made a trade that gives them a clear direction going forward. The Knicks didn't do that. Uh, And moving on from them, the Hornets went 1-3 and this week. It's hard to pick teams for this. I don't really think the Hornets played too terrible this week. Their losses are to decent teams, but I I figured out of all the teams with with only one win this week, uh, well... Also, the teams who didn't win a game are pretty bad, including the Magic, so don't really feel like putting them on here. That's not really disappointing. I come to expect that uh, at at this point. So Memphis, Chicago, Toronto are their losses, uh, and then only a win over Detroit. That's really the reason why I put them on here, because they might as well be 0-3. That win barely even counts for anything. Uh, But overall, Charlotte will be just fine eventually, I think. But, uh, you know, you would like to see a team that's trying to get into the playoffs and kind of break into it and maybe get out of the play And unlike last year, you would like to see that team beat a few good teams here and there. And I don't know if I've seen the Hornets necessarily beat playoff quality teams too much this year. So overall, I'd say they're a little bit disappointing, uh, but I, I don't, I don't really care that much. I think the Hornets are okay. Okay. Well, let's move to some people who are better than okay. That would be your co-players of the week. Let's go starting first with Joel Embiid. Of Philadelphia, he was the reason that I actually had to force the co-players of the week card again. Uh, well, the reason was because I didn't want to give it to the same guy twice in a row with no co-player. So, Joel, I thought was going to be it, and then I looked at the stats, and there's another guy who did pretty well this week too. But let's start with Joel Embiid: 33 points, 15 rebounds, 5.7 assists, 2.3 steals, and 1.7 blocks f- per game this week. Really, just a giant stat sheet stuffer and a lot of scoring. A lot of rebounding, which he's always going to give you. And uh, he's working his way into the MVP conversation. He is heavily considered now, uh, not necessarily as the MVP favorite, but as one of the front runners, along with Nikola Jokic and some others. Obviously, Giannis is in that conversation every year. So those three were really at the top, kind of just like they were last season. But uh, moving on from Joel Embiid, let's talk about the guy who was going to win it two weeks in a row, Luka Doncic. I mean, you put him against the Clippers and all of a sudden... I mean, this guy just turns into a next generation. I mean, the best scorer of all time when he's playing against the Clippers. 43 points, 10.3 rebounds, and 8.3 assists per game this week. Two of those games against the Clippers. First game, he scored 28 points in the first quarter alone. 51 total on 17 of 26 shooting. Uh, And then in the second game, even though the Mavericks lost, Luka scored 45 points, but... Apparently, 15 of 33 shooting isn't efficient enough uh, to carry the Mavericks to a win, obviously. Most players would die for those numbers, but uh, just not enough against the Clippers on that second game around. Uh, But look, Luka has been killing it recently. He should also be in the MVP conversation somewhere. I don't know if he's 
necessarily up there with those other guys also because of the games that he's missed. But I think Jokic and Doncic both have the same argument that they've missed a few games, and in the few that they've missed, their teams have looked horrible, and all of a sudden, these two come back into the fold, and all of a sudden, the team is just back to a top contender in the West again, and they're both sitting in pretty much the same place in the West. So uh, they both have their MVP considerations based off of that, and Joel Embiid has that because Philadelphia has been surging and near the top of the East right now. So uh, all of them valid contenders, all of them really good. You can throw in some other guys into that conversation, but just talking about these two this week, obviously, because they're the co-players of the week. That wraps up our look at all the action on the court in the NBA. Maybe equally as important was the action off the court in the front office as we hit the NBA trade deadline. Patrick, uh, your thoughts on the action and the NBA trade deadline? Well, I think you said maybe equally. Uh, I would say easily more important (laughs) action, especially when you talk about two or three of these teams. But before we go on to the big deals that were made, let's talk about the big deals that were not made. Uh, The Knicks and the Lakers did not make a single trade prior to the trade deadline. Uh, Good luck, I guess, is the only are the only words I can give to them. I just talked about how they're struggling and they don't really have a fix for it either. So we'll see what happens there. I don't know if they're looking at uh, contenders in the buyout market like Goran Dragic, but there are some other suitors for him. So they'll have to fight with some people for that. Uh, But now let's move on to the seven biggest deals that I picked out that were made before the trade deadline last Thursday. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about, you know, some of the moves that got a team a a good wing on the bench or something in a two-team trade. If it's a bigger trade with some role players involved, I might mention it. And obviously, uh, then there were some really, really big ones. So it's really hard to mention, you know, some trades that were out there uh, beside these mammoth trades that were made. But let's start with the Mavericks trading a second-round pick and Kristaps Porzingis. To the Wizards for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. Uh, overall, I'm confused what the Wizards are doing because they took Porzingis and then traded some other pieces that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, I don't know if this is like a win now move because they also traded pieces that would help them win now. I don't. I don't really know what's going on. Uh, maybe they're building the team around Porzingis and they think Kuzma can play the four for the rest of the season with Porzingis as a five. If that's what they want to do, that's an interesting choice, but. Uh, I, I can see the reasoning there, I guess. Uh, in On the Mavericks side, they're just looking for more shooting. It's pretty simple. They like Dwight Powell as a center, uh, and they like even maybe some small ball lineups without really playing a true center. So I, I think the Mavericks know where they're going, and they just want to put Luka around some shooters because he's going to get a lot of guys to suck into the lane, and then he can kick it out. But if no one's going to make the shots, then this team can't really go anywhere. They need guys who can make the shots. Dinwiddie and Bertans not having the best seasons percentage-wise from three, but maybe the idea is that with a new facilitator for them, they might actually be able to improve those percentages a little bit. But let's move on from that to another trade made by the Wizards. They traded Montrez Harrell to the Charlotte Hornets for Ish Smith and Vernon Carey. Uh, the Wizards getting some young guys back in it. Well, Ish Smith is a veteran that has played for many, many teams in the past, Uh, but Vernon Carey, a a young guy that is valuable for the Wizards, I guess, to rebuild around uh, if they are planning on rebuilding. Again, very confused on what the Wizards are doing here because they add somebody as good as Porzingis, uh, but yet at the same time in that same trade, get a pick and also trade away some other players who might help them win now, so I don't really know if they're in win now or rebuild mode. It's really hard to tell, 
Uh, maybe they're just trying to stay really young and still have a, a, a young winning core. That might be the idea. But the Hornets, clearly, uh, no offense to him, but maybe thinking Plumlee isn't the best center for now, and they want Montrez Harrell, who's played on playoff teams galore, and uh, he, he can be a, a, a big force down low for the Hornets, and I think that's a good move for them. And uh, they weren't really giving Ish Smith and Vernon Carey so much playtime in the first place. Uh, Vernon Carey because he's a little bit younger, and then Ish Smith because... He's just kind of there as a backup, and, you know, they have Lamella, this guy named Lamelo Ball playing point guard, uh, so they don't really need two of those. But overall, I see what the Hornets are trying to do. Again, I'm confused about the Wizards, but I'm not their GM. I'm not actually questioning the moves. I'm just saying I don't really know the approach, but if someone could tell me what their approach is, thank you. If they can't, I'll let the Wizards live off in their own world. But let's move on from that to the Celtics, who traded Josh Richardson Romeo Langford, a 2022 first-round pick, and swap rights on a 2028 first-rounder to the Spurs for Derek White. Uh, people who don't follow the NBA very close would think those are a lot of players for one guy who isn't necessarily a superstar. But in reality, Derek White is probably worth what they give, up, what the Celtics gave up. I don't know exactly if some of that had to do with contract details. It probably did, uh, but. I like what the Celtics did in the pit and what I was talking about earlier when I said they had gotten better. Derek White was what I was talking about. He has done a great job so far. He's looked really great in their system. He, he seems like he knows the offense. I think part of that uh, that people were mentioning is that the Celtics current coach, Ime Udoka, was part of the Greg Popovich system before, and that's the offensive system that he happens to be running. So Derek White is comfortable in that system because he came from the Spurs. Uh, and overall, Josh Richardson not having the best season. Maybe they're coming up with the idea that he didn't really fit around with the guys that they had, which kind of makes some sense. And then Romeo Langford not really having a place to go with kind of same measurables as Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And those are the two stars that they're building around. So you're not going to have a guy like that just sitting on the bench. You might as well make use of him somewhere. And maybe the Spurs will develop him into the next Kawhi Leonard because you never know what the Spurs can do with that organization. Uh, not saying he will be, but it's possible. You never know. Uh, and Derek White, again, has played really well for the Celtics so far. So I like the trade for both sides. But let's move on to the big, 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 big trade. The Brooklyn Nets traded James Harden and Paul Millsap for Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round picks in 2022 and 2027. I really like what the Nets did here because if James Harden is not playing uh, with the 100% effort, and he kind of wants out of a place, it's not going to go well for your team. And we have seen the Nets go on an 11-game losing streak, heading at least heading into tonight. So they weren't playing exactly well. It's not like James Harden had played in all of those games, and it's not like Kyrie Irving had played in all of those games. But it, it clearly isn't working. And if they think they can contend at all without Kevin Durant playing or, or being injured at least a little bit, they're going to need some other guys. Uh, I like bringing in Ben Simmons. Obviously, you have the concerns about what happens when he gets in the playoffs, but I really feel that the only reason why it doesn't work in Philly as well as it as well as well it might in Brooklyn is that Joel Embiid is not exactly going to catch and shoot a lot from a guy like Ben Simmons because, you know, he's a center that's not as an actual position. He can do that, but that's not what he prefers to do. Kevin Durant can be set up by anybody. Kyrie, same thing. Uh, I think Brooklyn has more guys who can create their own shot and are more agile, so it might work a little bit better with Ben Simmons than it did in Philadelphia, and obviously he wasn't going to play this year, so Philly had to do something. I mean, look, they had to get they had to get something back for Ben Simmons rather than just 
let him leave next year. So uh, I, I think it was a good idea for them. Uh, and for, for the Nets, they got a lot back. And I think even Seth Curry and Andre Drummond, I mean, Seth Curry fills the void of even not having a Joe Harris and then gives them really two elite shooters that they can put around Kevin Durant and Ben Simmons. And by the way, KD doesn't need elite shooters surrounding him because he's an elite shooter himself. But overall, I really, really, really like the Nets' end of this deal. I actually think they probably won the trade also because of the fact that they somehow got first-round picks out of this. And, you know, the thought was that they might use those first-round picks to flip a, to flip for another guy later on in, in the day. And I, I don't think they actually ended up making a move that, that utilized those picks. I, they definitely didn't. But uh, overall... I like the Nets in this deal, honestly. I think they won the trade, but uh, I think you could argue either way. Let's talk about the next deal involving an East Eastern Conference contender. The Bucks acquired Serge Ibaka, two second-round picks, and cash in a four-team trade with the Kings, Pistons, and Clippers. The Kings got Dante DiVincenzo from the Bucks, Trey Lyles and Josh Jackson, Josh Jackson from the Pistons, while the Pistons got Marvin Bagley from the Kings, and the Clippers got Rodney Hood and Shemi Ojale. Uh, again, everybody, I think, got what they wanted in this deal. I mean, if you look at it from in a non-NBA fan perspective, you're looking at this deal like, what in the world are, are any of these guys going to do for any of these teams? Uh, the Pistons' idea might be to re-sign Marvin Bagley as a restricted free agent. He's shown flashes of the potential that we all thought he once had in Sacramento, but Sacramento wasn't really playing him that much, so it kind of makes sense that he gets a fresh start there. The Pistons are willing to take that on. Uh, the Kings want shooters, and apparently they're now trying to contend, as we'll see with their next deal. So Dante DiVincenzo is a perfect fit there. I don't know exactly what Trey Lyles and Josh Jackson will do for the Kings, but we'll have to see what happens there. Uh, and then, you know, the Bucks got Serge Ibaka. They, I think they're really just looking for a guy who fills the void of a Brook Lopez when he's kind of injured and uh, maybe even just having a second guy like that off the bench. Bobby Portis has kind of stepped into that role, but he, he's shown some weakness, at least defensively. Uh, defending against those centers, he's kind of having trouble with the really big guys that are out there. So it, it makes sense that when you're thinking about maybe even, I mean, if you're even looking super far down the line, you could see the Bucks looking at DeAndre Ayton and looking at Nikola Jokic and saying, how are we going to contend with that when Bobby Portis is our starting center? Uh, Bobby Portis is great. I mean, he is great, but... I think he's better suited to play the four off the bench, and I think getting Ibaka allows them to start him and play Bobby Portis in the role that he shined in last year in the finals that catapulted him into one of the city's favorite players. Uh, but overall, I think the Bucks did great in this deal. I think the Kings did fine with their approach now, and uh, I don't really know what the Clippers are doing. They're kind of in the Wizards world of things where, you know, they're so far down in the standings that none of these moves I don't think brings any of these teams to championship status, but... Uh, I guess they're they're getting pieces that they consider moves that will help them get better overall. I don't know what they're going for, but uh, I think the Clippers did fine. Frankly, I think about it a lot. Whenever I don't know what the exact idea is from an NBA team, it probably means that it's way over my head, and it's probably the GM making a move that makes sense because they watch the Clippers on the daily while I don't. So uh, it makes sense to me. Uh, and I already talked about the Pistons side of this deal. So overall, I pretty much like it from all four perspectives. And the reason why I like it from the Kings' perspective is what they did earlier. Uh, the Pacers traded DeMontis Sabonis, Jeremy Lamb, Justin Holiday, and a 2027 second-round pick for Tristan Thompson, Buddy Heald, and Tyrese Halliburton. 
I actually think that this trade was great for both teams in approaches they've decided to take. Uh, I know that that is not exactly a widely accepted opinion. However, let me say this. I might not entirely agree with the approach the Kings have taken, but with the fact that they think that they can contend and maybe get into the play-in uh, play bracket and, you know, that that's kind of the goal this season is to just snap the playoff drought, if that's the approach, this trade actually does help them do that. The thing that I think people are killing them for, which makes sense, is that Tyrese Halliburton is just looking like he has the potential to be an all-star in the future for many, many years to come with so much more flexibility on his contract because he's on a rookie year. I mean, a rookie deal, all of those things go into it. So I understand why most people are saying that the Kings made a terrible trade. Uh, and then the fact that the Kings went 2-0 and after the trade kind of makes it look a little bit better because it looks like it makes them look like they're a really good team with Demonis Sabonis. But I do have to say, the Kings are trying to contend, and now that we know that with the Dante DiVincenzo deal added to this, it's clear that that's what they're trying to do. I disagree more with them actually trying to contend rather than the idea of the trade itself, if that makes any sense. Uh, if they, I just think maybe not trading Halliburton was the best move the Kings could have made, regardless of whether it gets them into the play in this year or not. Uh, but let's move from that. To another reason why I don't think the approach is quite there, the Pelicans acquired C.J. McCollum, Larry Nance Jr., and Tony Snell for Josh Hart, Tomas Sedaransky, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Didi Luzada, and a, fir- and a 2022 first-round pick and two second-round picks uh, that I guess are in years that aren't exactly known yet because I couldn't find it, but... This is another reason why I don't know what the Kings were doing. Maybe they thought this was a counter to stay even with the Pelicans. They, they into the trade deadline, were going into it, I think, two games back. Uh, the Kings were of the Pelicans, and then the Pelicans got C.J. McCollum, and I was thinking, okay, the Pelicans really think they're going to get this 10 seed here, get Zion back later in the year when he's healthy, and then have C.J. McCollum added to the mix, and all of a sudden they feel like they can get that 10 seed. I think that's the idea they're going for. Uh, it now seems like there are a couple teams who are pushing for the 10 seed with the Kings doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, I think it just proves that the NBA got it right with the play-in bracket because you now have extra teams who aren't trying to tank and who are selling at the trade deadline, but rather a team who's desperate to break a playoff drought that's saying, you know, 12th place is only two spots out of it rather than four spots out of it. We can make a move that can get us there. Now you have some teams that, you know, you got a lot of guys trading, uh, trading places with each other, but at the same time, you have more teams contending. I'm all for that. Okay, well, that uh, wraps up our look at the NBA trade deadline moves and the NBA action of last week. Let's move on to Super Bowl 56, where the Rams defeated the Bengals 23-20. Patrick, your thoughts on the Super Bowl? I thought the four quarters of this game were similar to the Rams' regular season if you divided the regular season up into four quarters. A 3-1 and one start out to start the season was just like the 7-3 lead that the Rams had at the end of the first quarter, and then four wins in a row to get to 7-1 and one were like the Rams holding their 13-3 lead over the Bengals. But then it kind of started to come apart a little bit. You get an extra point where Johnny Hecker just drops the ball trying to put it down, and then, I mean, frankly, he almost threw a pick six on it, and then it really would have been interesting at a 13-5 score. That would have been interesting for some Super Bowl squares too somewhere. Uh, but then... The Rams gave up a touchdown to make it 13-10, and then Odell got injured on a drive that ended up in a Stafford interception, which is reminiscent of Robert Woods getting injured. Uh, then the start of the third quarter, the start of the third was just like the Rams season, with 10 unanswered points by the Bengals, 
with some frustrating officiating, which mirror a three-game losing streak, including a frustrating loss to the Titans at the start of the proverbial third quarter of that season, too. Then, looking like they were not necessarily out of it because no team in the Super Bowl is out of it and no 8-4 and four team is out of the playoff race, but the Rams were at 8-4, and four, and after being down in the division by three games to the Cardinals, they had, I think, 20 players on the COVID list on Monday Night Football on the road going at the Cardinals, while the Cardinals, I think, were 10-1 and one at that point. And the Rams played up with the next man up mentality, just like they did when Odell went down, and great teamwork on defense to pull the division race back within their grasp, just like the Super Bowl was back in their hands with a field goal to make it a four-point game to get to 20-16, to 16. and just like how the Rams closed out the season 5-1, and one, uh, the duo of Matt, Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup came through in the clutch, leading the Rams to a division title in the regular season, and then this time around on the game-winning drive, leading the Rams to a Super Bowl title with no-look passes and fourth-down conversions and a Super Bowl MVP for Cup, just like ending the season with an Offensive Player of the Year in the NFC. And while that story all sounds great, it also fails to mention what I thought actually won the game, which was the Rams' defense. After Stafford threw an interception when the Rams were down by seven, the Rams only gave up 11 yards on eight plays to hold Cincy to a field goal. In the rest of the game, here are the drive summaries for Cincinnati. You had three plays, negative three yards and a punt. Three plays, five yards and a punt. Five plays, negative two yards and a punt. Seven plays, 24 yards and a punt. And then five plays, 26 yards, a turnover on downs to end the game. And that was Aaron Donald, who was the best player on the field once again, as he is in every game he plays in at this point, and probably has been ever since the 2019 Super Bowl, when Tom Brady was still closer to his peak. And on third and one, he stopped Samaj P. Ryan from getting through a hole that could have led to a tying field goal. Well, who knows what would have happened at that point. And then throwing Joe Burrow to the ground on fourth and one, just like he did to Jimmy Garoppolo when he threw the game ceiling pick two weeks ago uh, as Joe Burrow tried to throw the ball. Well, I mean, I don't even know where he was trying to throw the ball to because he kind of just flung it out there, hoping that someone might catch it um, as Aaron Donald threw him to the ground. But the reality is... Aaron Donald was just that good, and overall, the Rams' defense was just that good. The Rams' pass rush came through in the clutch. An 86% pass rush win rate, the highest by any team this season in any game. They tied a Super Bowl record with seven sacks. And then you also have Matthew Stafford, who had his third game-winning drive this postseason which ties Eli Manning from 2007 for the most in a single postseason. And you also have Sean McVay becoming the youngest Super Bowl winning head coach of all time at 36 years and 20 days old. Um, and then you have all all those guys talking about retirement, which I that, the, let's not talk about that. As the Rams motto, it seems now is, let's not talk about tomorrow when we still have today, right? The Rams, you know, you look at the future. They don't have a first round pick until 2024. They have like one draft pick this entire year other than compensatory picks that they might get and then some seventh rounders that they got in some trades. But the reality is the all-in mentality worked and the Rams got the Super Bowl that they were going for uh, and it ended with really a storybook ending that, you know, was only fitting for Aaron Donald to end the game and uh, that's what he did on two separate plays where the Bengals just needed one yard and you just have the immovable object in the middle of the defensive line being Aaron Donald we said that it would be the thing that would break the cam- the straw that break the camel that broke the camel's back for the Bengals. That offensive line was the problem. And by the way, on the last play of the game, Jamar Chase was wide open, and Joe Burrow just did not have enough time. Well, 
He was breaking wide open. Jalen Ramsey fell down in coverage as Joe Burrow was getting thrown to the ground. But just like the Bengals' problem all season in any game that they lost, just not enough time for Burrow. And the reality is, as many people would say, if they had drafted Penny Sewell, then maybe he would have had time to throw the route. But as I would counter with, Jamar Chase was the only guy who was going to get open over Jalen Ramsey. And the reality is, that duo is the reason why the Bengals made it to the Super Bowl. It might be the reason why they also lost the Super Bowl because they didn't have another guy playing for Jamar Chase, but I'd argue they don't make it there without him. And even if he gets sacked five times in Tennessee, I bet without Jamar Chase, they lose that game. I bet they lose a lot of other games. The whole season would have unfolded differently. The Bengals did a great job of structuring a ros- of structuring their roster just like the Rams did when they were going all in. I mean, the Bengals are obviously much younger. And look, they have nearly $50 million in cap space next year to add to that roster. They're going to get some offensive linemen. They'll be back. But for now, talk about the Rams, the new Super Bowl champions in the city of champions. All right, a few few things, reactions. Um, don't be so sure the Cincinnati Bengals are going to spend that $50 million bucks. Probably they're not tra- all of it. They're a traditionally cheap organization. Did you see the baseball hat the owner was wearing in the box? That's how they spend money on their team. Okay, uh, I, I digress. Great end to the season. Seven, the final seven playoff games were all fantastic. As far as talking about retirement for Rams players, there's one guy we can talk about, Eric Weddle. Right, that is true. I mean, look, I, I would also say that the other thing that the Rams did is that they got rings to guys who deserved it, even though they were the super team that were, I mean, frankly, most super teams are easily hateable. This super team was made out of a bunch of guys who are really not necessarily thrown out on the street because all of them have had illustrious careers before coming to the Rams, but... When you look at Odell, when you look at Von Miller, when you look at Eric Weddle, I mean, Eric Weddle was sitting on his couch four weeks ago. You have Von Miller who was stuck in Denver with the team that's not really going to contend for the rest of his career, probably. So they get, they ship him off to a better place. Odell says he wants out of Cleveland. Odell gets with the real quarterback again, and all of a sudden, Odell, Von Miller, Eric Weddle, Super Bowl champions. Andrew Whitworth. And Andrew Whitworth finally getting one albeit against his former team, and too. He so, uh, And he definitely will be retiring. And good for him for being the oldest player to play in a game, finally, uh, or to play on one Sunday, I can say, because Tom Brady was finally retired. A couple other notes. Um, Rams would have The Rams would have set the Super Bowl record for sacks if that wasn't the last play of the game. He would have taken a sack, right, Burrow? They didn't get, a, they didn't get credit for a sack on that last play. No, they, they didn't the because away. he threw the ball wildly. But, yeah, it I mean. Should, that should have been a sack. Um, they probably would have blown the play dead in a regular season game too. So yeah, that would have been a sack. Yeah. Uh, did they have six of them in the second half? It seemed like yeah. all the sacks were in the second yes, half. Yes, they, they. I think they did have six in the second half. And Aaron Donald went from his stats being just one pressure in the first, I think, thirty-eight snaps to all of a sudden after the Rams were down, as soon as that touchdown by T. Higgins that was an obvious face mask on him, but, you know, that's why I'm not... I actually am not talking about the refs at all because there were bad calls going both ways, and overall, I think they canceled each other out. I think both teams got gifted a touchdown, so call it even. Uh, but the the thing is, yeah, after that after that touchdown by T. Higgins, I think Aaron Donald compiled all of his stats other than one pressure that he got. He got all two sacks. He got four tackles. Uh, he got a two two or three other pressures, and then that quarterback hit. At least he got credit with a quarterback hit for that. But uh, I'm also glad to see that... A game finally happened where it was clear that maybe the Super Bowl MVP should not have been the quarterback, and they actually gave it to somebody who wasn't the quarterback because I could argue last year someone on the Buccaneers' defense probably deserved it more than Tom Brady did, and I'm glad that Cooper Cup got it because really, Matthew Stafford on the last drive, 3 of 7 for 18 yards throwing to non-Cooper Cup guys. 
He got the first down run on fourth down. The Rams had like no running game, and the only good run that they had in all of the second half was Cooper Cup. Uh, obviously, Stafford had that great no-look pass to Cooper Cup. Uh, that I mean, that was obviously a play made by Stafford, not a play not made by seen Cup. That play in slow motion with a football analyst. You need to watch that play. It's one of the most incredible things you will ever see. And uh, credit to Aaron Rodgers, who said that uh, as soon as people started talking about Patrick Mahomes' no looks, that Aaron Rodgers said a few years ago, Matt Stafford's been doing it for years. He's not that impressed. And uh, he brought it out on the biggest stage. And, you know, Patrick Mahomes is even wowed by it on Twitter, if you can go check his Twitter. But, look, overall, Stafford to Cup was the connection that won the game. Even when so many times this season there were plays drawn up where Cup was the decoy and Odell was the guy who was the beneficiary the Rams had dropped passes on third downs when they had drawn Cup up as the decoy because of the fact that there was no Robert Woods for the second half of the season. And by the way, they they did sign, people forget that Robert Woods was not injured when they signed Odell. He might have been injured like literally the like practice huge. after. No, it, it was literally, it was they signed days, him on Thursday night. Yeah. No, it was they signed him on Thursday, on Thursday night and he got injured in practice on Friday. But the reality is, they were supposed to have all three of them. If you t- Even if you take Robert Woods out for a second, they were still supposed to have such a dependable option. They were also supposed to have Tyler Higby, who wasn't playing in this game, which forced Bryson Hopkins to get a few receptions. And I don't even know if Kendall Blanton got injured in the middle of the game because it seemed like he stopped yeah, he playing. But uh, Bryson Hopkins came in with some big catches. Uh, ben Skoranek didn't drop an open touchdown like he did against the Cardinals. But, I mean, overall, he could have... Or, or I guess that was against the Niners, actually. But he could have um, he could have played a little bit better. He he had some drops. He he led to one of the interceptions by the Rams. Actually, uh, that interception at the beginning of the second half was a drop by him. But overall, Stafford had seen the second half and how it played out, and he just decided double coverage, triple coverage, quadruple coverage. I'm going to find some way to throw it to Cooper Cup. Whether I need to look the opposite way of the field, whether I need to turn around and look to the opposite end zone and throw it over my head, I'm going to find Cooper Cup and I'm going to throw it to him. And I'm also going to find Eli Apple in coverage and throw it at him repeatedly over and over and over again until he got uh, roasted both on the field and off the field. All right, well, a few a few other notes. Uh, and I, I think this was Mike Greenberg. May have been Scott Van Pelt to give credit where credit's due. I mentioned this to you. Cooper Cup, an amazing season. He won the receiving triple crown. It's actually ESPN Stats and Info. Okay, he won the receiving triple crown. He won the NFC Offensive Player of the Year and Super Bowl MVP in one season. The only person ever to do that in a career was Jerry Rice. So he had a Jerry Rice career, I'm overstating things, in one game. Um, And as you said, the Rams gutted it out at the end. They had two players basically left on offense, and they managed to find a way to get it done. And just feel great for all those players. Matt Stafford, long-suffering Detroit Lion. Um, the Lions fans are actually celebrating uh, his win, which just shows you the affinity that that, that that town has for him and how much he put up with. So so good for him. And both he and his buddy Clayton Kershaw grew up together in high school, two all-time greats who finally got a ring at the end of their career. I'll be, I'm done with my tear-jerking uh, feel-good story vignettes here. Anything else you have to say? Well, I do have to say uh, Stafford also showed that when you have protection on your two-minute drills, it's way easier to get stuff done. Uh, Mahomes in the last Super Bowl had that same thing where, the I mean, look, a lot of teams are, a lot of people are saying, like, right after this Super Bowl, I mean, we're still less than 24 hours. I mean, not not less than anymore, but a little bit over 24 hours after it's over. And everybody's saying the Bengals need to go out and do what the Chiefs did. And by the way, they don't even have to spend $50 million because the Chiefs had like $5 million in cap space and rebuilt their entire offensive line. And that was without spending a first-round pick on it. 
The Bengals both have a first-round pick. They can use their second-round pick and do what the... I mean, if they have the evaluators the Chiefs do, they can make trades, they can sign people, and then they can all... I mean, because the Chiefs traded for Ronnie Stanley, they signed Joe Tooney, and then they drafted offensive linemen and drafted Creed Humphrey, who ended up, I think, as the all-pro center. There are centers in this draft that the Bengals can get. If they see the talent and they see who they want to get, they should go and get them because, honestly, other than maybe a third corner or a slot corner... I don't really see any weaknesses in the Bengals that are that are so glaring other than that terrible offensive line that can't protect Joe Burrow. But again, all credit goes to the Rams. Doesn't really matter what happened with the Bengals and what will happen next year because we got to talk about the champions. And uh, my last note on this is I think LeBron had a great vision for what the city should do. There has been no championship parade for the Lakers or for the Dodgers. So as LeBron said, we to quote him, we, the Dodgers and the Rams, should have one giant championship parade with a live concert at the end of it. Justin Turner and the rest of the Rams should, I mean, the rest of the Dodgers should say they're all game for it because, well, they're in a lockout, so they don't have anything to be doing. Uh, The NBA is going to be on the All-Star break soon, so you might have to have that party without LeBron, but they'll be on the break, and it's the Rams offseason, so I don't know why, after they've gone to Disneyland, they might be able to... uh, Maybe pull that together. Maybe they do a three-team championship parade. I hope they do. That's a party I would love to attend, a parade I would love to be at. Well, uh, that does wrap up our look back at Super Bowl 56. It wraps up the NFL season. Patrick and I will be deciding maybe we'll do some USFL coverage in in the coming weeks uh, when that season starts. Probably not. (laughs) Otherwise, we're going to have to wait until September maybe to talk football. Maybe we'll talk the draft. Uh, That wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Friday, February 18th, where we will have our weekly in-depth analysis of college basketball action. Doesn't look like we will have a USFL preview. Uh, in the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games, his latest NCAA basketball tournament bracket, which was posted on Saturday, and his next bracket, which will be posted tomorrow. All of that on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.